0: honestly became more well known as a barista than a drummer which was really frustrating for me you know I, I i remember i was in the zurich switzerland airport and i ran into somebody that that knew me from somewhere and i was hoping they would say oh yeah you're that drummer that great yeah, jazz drummer right or... and they were like no you made me a lot <laughs> <laughs> like god damn really yeah uh so but it paid the bills man
1: This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. Uh, Before we get into today's episode, I'd just like to give a special welcome to our new producer, Jeff Meese. Jeff is a colleague here at the University of Montana College of Business. I guess his title is Instructional Technician He's basically the go-to guy for all things video and sound happening here at the college and just does fantastic work. Uh, In addition to that, Jeff has a tremendous uh, CV of credits um, in the production space here in Montana. I mean, he's done work for HBO, Vice Media, uh, National Geographic, and many others. And so having Jeff on the team and his expertise is just fantastic. It's certainly pushing me to understand sound Uh, more completely and uh, the importance of it in the production and uh, he produced last week's episode that was his first one with nick triolo and he comes on board and we're really excited to have jeff um, and his contributions to the show so welcome jeff anyway let's turn our attention to this week's guest john wicks john wicks is the drummer for fits in the tantrums a tremendously successful band um on the world scene, I mean, this guy's constantly posting pictures uh, on his Instagram feed of you know them playing to 70,000-person arenas all over the world. And they've had uh, just huge success with uh, their latest album. And the single hand clap off of that album was just an out-of-the-park success. So it's interesting to talk to John. He's a Missoula resident and um, passionate uh, outdoor athlete. Uh, we have a lot in common, and we've known each other for a number of years here on the Missoula scene. And talking to John, it was fun to learn about um, just the the grit, determination, hustle, and focus that he had to succeed in his in his profession and as a drummer. How he worked his way up through the ranks, sort of mastered his craft, and now is in a position of tremendous success. And, and what now is next? I mean, you hear him talk about uh, the pressures that come with producing a tremendously successful album and uh, some expectations to do it all over again and, and, and some creative um, forces in the band where they're thinking about, well, maybe we're not so sure about doing the same thing over again. So interesting conversation with, with John. And then the other side of it, cheese, I mean, we could make two awesome episodes just out of a conversation with John. But, but you know, several years ago, he launched, uh, in, in, in tandem with his, his wife Jenna, Drum Coffee. A really awesome coffee shop, cafe, roastery here in Missoula. And they have two locations, produce a great product, a fantastic experience. And uh, we talk about that and how he sort of became a student of the coffee game and has tried to bring a lot of those insights to the Missoula populace. Anyway, I will turn it over to John Wicks. All right, so we're here today with John Wicks. John, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure,
0: man. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, so we, uh, we go back a bit. In fact, we had an interesting meeting moment where uh, you responded to a Craigslist ad about my
0: van. <laughs> Right, I, I should I sold like you at a this point I should car. like fake like you son of a bitch. You know, I know I sold you a used car. <laughs> you sold me a used car, <laughs> and the friendship
1: was was made to last.
0: That was my dream car, but I hate, I think Jenna broke it to you. I I had to sell it.
1: Well, I I had a moment where I saw Jenna roll up in an F one fifty, which as you know is the <laughs> truck I bought when I sold you the van, and I thought, what's going on here with the Wicks family? Are I'm kind like, of stalking
0: you, man. Car I'm stalking just doing, me, doing uh, doing what you do. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah man. It was. Uh, that, I love that car. I'm not really a car person at all. Um, I drive around a 78 Nova. That was my grandmother's mm. car, uh, which is a rad car. But, um, but I've always lusted after those Eurovans. Yeah, yeah. And I had this dream of me and my wife and my two kids camping and, and doing that. And we did do that a few times, but I forgot to factor in that my, my daughters grow mm-hmm. like really fast. And uh it be the last time we tried it it was didn't really go that well. And so it was kind of like uh my cue to to move on.
1: I understand that life cycle. Well, we could convince all day about you know our used car transactions, but um, very few people are probably that interested in that. What they're interested in is is you as a as a rock and roll star, but also as an entrepreneur yeah. here in, in in Missoula. You and your wife have opened up two cafes now and a roaster. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about all of that. But um, first, I'd like to kind of talk about um, your existence as a musician, as a drummer for Fits in the Tantrums, and and uh, we don't need need to go into the whole story about the band, but but mostly like. How does a rock and roll star like yourself live in Missoula, Montana? Right.
0: Why here? And why that choice? And how did that come to be? Well, so, um, going back a bit, I, I, uh, I'm originally, well, I'm a Navy brat. So we moved Mm -hmm. around a lot as a kid. Right. Uh, My dad was a commander in the Navy. And, um, and then when he retired, uh, we moved to Seattle uh, from New Orleans. And that's um, a big move. Yeah, it was huge, man. Um and it was at a, a a weird time. I was a, a young kid, actually right about my daughter's age. And um so we moved to Bainbridge Island. Uh-huh. Um and it was very isolated and very rainy and um I hated it at first and then it uh grew on me after a while and I I I I really enjoyed it. And it was looking back, it was a pretty idyllic place to grow up. Um and so I kind of grew up there, and then I, uh, when I graduated high school, I went moved to Ellensburg, Washington, and went to Central Washington University there uh, for a few years. And then um, I, I mean, I tried everything I could possibly try to get away from drumming. Um, my parents were not especially supportive of me. Pursuing music at that point. Uh-huh. I had understandably a lot of worries about me pursuing it as a career. Sure. Um, so, but you know, I tried everything from graphic design to um, communications. I was a DJ. Um, I tried everything I could do to try to find something where out of college I'd be making some decent money. Mm-hmm. But I just, I was spending all my spare time practicing drums still and, um, uh, finally i finally had a meeting with my my dad he came to visit in ellensburg and i i laid it out for him and just said i i don't really want to do anything else you know and he was like well you've given these things a, a fair shake but you're on your own you know yeah and yeah. I, I really wanted to move to boston i wanted to live in i wanted to go to school at berkeley college of music okay and, i know it yeah. yeah and uh i wanted to experience the east coast i'd never been there and and um and at that time, I was solely a jazz musician. That's all I wanted to uh-huh. do, you know. And that's where you needed to be. I mean, it was uh, New York in particular was where I wanted to end up, and I wanted to make a living as a jazz drummer. So, uh, so I moved there, and, and it was tough, man. I, I had a scholarship there for one year, a partial scholarship, and then I was, I was hustling. And, and um, right about that same time, just before I had left there, in order to raise money for school, I, was, I worked at the very first Starbucks. Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah,
1: and back up one second. Was there sure. something about jazz that, in particular, that style of music? Because I'm thinking about the the timing when you were growing up in Seattle. I mean, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of different musics, types of musics evolving,
0: emerging. Why jazz? Yeah, that's a great question. I I had a, I was very lucky. My parents were jazz fans. In okay. particular, they were fans of. One piano player named Ahmad Jamal, who um, there was a record that he put out called "Live at the Pershing," and um, I heard that record, and there was something about that record that that hit me like mm-hmm. a ton of bricks. And I mean, I wore out several copies of that record, just playing to it in my garage. And then I was really lucky in that I had a teacher named Alan Valiers in middle school and high school band. Who I mean, I had a wonderful father. I didn't need a second father, but he was like a second father sure. to me and, and recognized my talent and uh, the drive that I had and fueled that with even just giving me more records to listen to and yep. that were kind of touchstone records that you know you sort of needed to listen to as a jazz musician. So I just I, I, I couldn't get enough, and I loved it, and I love being able to express myself on that instrument and, um, and jazz music is, that's, that's what it allows you to do, yeah. you know? And, uh, it also requires a huge amount of musicianship and technique and practice in order to play it well. And, um, I was spending every moment in the practice room, just trying to get better and better and better and better. Um, so yeah, that, that was, that was it. I was really, just really lucky that I found this teacher, um, or, um and he was my teacher through middle school and high school and um um uh, yeah it was it was uh match made in heaven there sure. and and um so yeah I moved to the East Coast there to try to do that and it was one of the best thing decisions I ever made because when I was at Berkeley, I mean I mean the drumming talent pool at Berkeley is always super deep. Yeah. But at that time, you know, Abe Laborial Jr. was there, who was the drummer for Paul McCartney now. Um John Blackwell, who was the drummer for Prince, was there. Wow. Uh, little John Roberts, who was drummer for Janet Jackson, a bunch of people was there. Jorge Rossi, who was uh, jazz pianist Brad Meldow's drummer, was there. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. And yeah. it was, you know, they, those were the guys that I was always putting my You're ear the to the wall. The center. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. totally. And, and, and just trying to keep up with that crowd was, was one of the big ass kickings that I needed, you know, in order to know whether I could hang. Mm -hmm. And there was only one way to do it. And that was to dive in and and see otherwise, I mean, Ellensburg was wonderful. I love that town. And I love that school. But it wasn't giving me the cross Yeah, action. you're not rubbing elbows with that crap. <laughs> no. no hey, very... I mean, you know what, though? I mean, like, there's still guys that come out of that school that are professional sure, drummers. Sure, You know, and, and at that t- even then, like at that time, the drumming talent pool at Central Washington University was no joke. Um, but I needed to know. You know, I, yeah. I, uh, otherwise I would have been asking, yeah, or it would have been like, oh, I could have moved to New York or I could have moved to Boston. But, you know, I didn't want to be that guy. Yeah, I huh. wanted to. To really like a no regrets me. type yep. of attitude. So yep. so that kinda comes to an end, that phase, and you mm-hmm. move
1: back to Seattle? Well and, and... it came to an end
0: <laughs> a lot quicker than I anticipated because I was starving. You know, yeah. I was living on a bag of potatoes and top ramen and I tried to move to New York to try to make a living there and, and oh. it was a rude awakening for me, man. You know, and not that I couldn't hang ability wise, but like my heroes were, you know, passing the hat at, at clubs to make extra money, you wow. know, and seeing you know, guys that have played with Lonious Monk and like that, trying to make some tips. You know, uh, that was for me a, 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 an awakening. Like, okay, dude, if if they're doing it, what are you doing? You know. So
1: and, what you're saying is like the best of the best are kind of starving at best, yeah, man. And really So struggling. this is this is a hard path that you've chosen at
0: this point. Yeah, and I could have. I guess I, you know, it would. Uh, You know, I I, I guess I suffer some punk rock or jazz or guilt a little bit because, uh, you know, that's part of it. That's part of, that's why you moved to New York. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you moved to New York to starve, to do that, you know, and um, and it was tough. But just as as a drummer, getting around in New York was really tough. Like, you can't bring your drums on the subway. Cab drivers won't let them load them into a cab. Right. You know, you can't have a car in New York. So how do you get around, you know, so that's why <laughs> when you see drummers in New York, they're usually playing like a little converted bass drum that's like 16 inches wide and a snare drum and a couple cymbals. And that's about it because yeah. you got to get around somehow, you know, so um, it's just tough. It's a hustle. And I enjoyed the hustle, but um, I was just going deeper and deeper in debt and like having a rough time making the rent. And mm-hmm. So sort of with my tail between my legs, I moved back to Seattle. Sure. Um and right about then was when the grunge era was hitting. Yeah, yeah. And, so this is uh,
1: early 90s late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: this is about yeah, 95, right yeah. about 95 and and um you know our buddy Jeff uh Amen was killing it in Pearl Jam and like um uh you know every uh, all those bands were just killing it and I I sort of kind of missed that. You know, because I was a jazzer, you know, and, and, uh, so I was a little out of the loop when I moved back to Seattle. It had blown up in Seattle when I left, you know, right in those years I left. It it was, it had changed completely. I like, it used to be this little outpost that no one ever went to, no one toured to, you know, they went as far north as Portland and that was about it. And, um. So it was very different when I got back. But it was exciting uh-huh. at the same time. A lot like, of change. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of guys very more optimism, I guess, because the scene had blown up there and um,
1: Which is funny. That's not a word you often associate with the grunge movement. It's right. Optimism, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: That's true. But Yeah, but uh, I can
1: see it's, you know, opportunity and the world's expanding and all of a sudden yeah. the sort of the, the spotlight is on Seattle in a new way and right. for better or for worse.
0: Right. And it and it kinda of branched off also into that the just the general seattle lifestyle that's right about the time starbucks was blowing up yep and i was there for that and um and you know uh i was too cool for it i was like working i went back straight back to working at starbucks and um was working at columbia center and first interstate building downtown super busy cafes and yep um you know uh but it started to The green aprons appeared and the Mm, uniforms appeared. And I was like, oh, man. Not your bag. (laughs) No, you know, not, not, no, it wasn't, you know. Uh, So I went, started going to a little, working at independent cafes around Seattle. And I I worked at so many of them. And honestly became more well-known as a barista than a drummer, which was really frustrating for me. You know, I I, I remember (laughs) I was in the Zurich, Switzerland airport and I ran into somebody that, that knew me from somewhere, and I was hoping they would say, oh, yeah, you're that drummer, that great yeah, jazz drummer, right? Or... And they were like, no, you made me a lot. <laughs> 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 like, God damn it, really? Yeah. Uh, so, but it paid the bills, man. And, and um, yeah, and uh, right about that time is when I met my wife, Jenna, my yep. wife-to-be, yep. Jenna. Um, I met her through Maggie Cornell, who was Chris Cornell's sister. Mm-hmm. Um, and Maggie was also a barista, and, and she was a dear friend of mine, and and she thought that jenna and i would hit it off so she was kind of matchmaker there and
1: nice well done
0: yeah yeah totally i owe her big time uh and that was over 20 years ago now so um it's worked out but uh but yeah so um kept going there and kept hustling just playing jazz music that was it and then suddenly i something changed where i became a little bit tired um of the athleticism of that music Hmm. Um, it became more about the technique and more about how many notes can i play and how fast can i play Uh,
1: i see it's it's more about the technique
0: than the art in a way yeah. yeah yeah uh it was sort of under the guise of art but when it didn't feel that way to me anymore and i started to listen to other players that i felt like were using space more And I and I started to get away from just like swing rhythms. And I started to like uh, around that time, hip hop started really catching my ear. There was a record called Three Feet High and Rising by De La Soul that that came out just a little bit earlier than that. And um, it was all samples, you know, Uh, and inside the record cover, they would list where what the records were that they sampled. And I made it my goal to buy every one of those records and learn. Like, they were sampling Led Zeppelin. They sure. were sampling Steely Dan. They were sampling all these things. So I started just doing all this research in like, who's Led Zeppelin? I didn't even, you know, that's how deep into jazz I was.
1: Yeah. You know, I didn't yeah. know
0: who Led Zeppelin was, or, you know, and Steely Dan I knew. But, you know, so uh, I just started researching. And then I got into, like, uh, jazz music that, that was using Hammond organ. Uh, soul like it was soul infused jazz I was like that's cool because it's like a backbeat thing and like people can dance to it but it's still technically jazz music and like and then I just went it got further and further and then my priorities started to change where I was like more about how can I affect a lot of people and make them dance and that mm. became more of the thrill, because that's the power of drums, yeah. you know? And I started to realize that I, that's what I was missing when I was playing jazz music, is that I was missing hitting, I mean, creatively, and, and I, I was hitting people in the audience, but they were sitting down and... Um, more analytically listening than just viscerally feeling. having a great time and
1: so as you're i'm just trying to kind of layer this onto your kind of professional trajectory sure. so you're you're working in the coffee shop mm-hmm. you're, you're you're trying to catch a break as a drummer yeah but this new kind of artistic perspective or, or really your, your personal mission is starting to emerge right how does that layer on to what's going on in terms of the gigs that you're getting
0: yeah so that's Honestly, this is where kind of it ties into um, uh, the lessons I learned and like, you know, what am I doing opening cafes and that kind of thing. Well, all of these lessons that I learned during this time period as far as how to promote a band, um, just being in a band. Before that, I wasn't bands. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was like quartets. Sure. trios, Sure. Things like that. Arrangements. But, but then suddenly I was like, oh, wait, I should start a band in these styles that I want to learn, like hip-hop or soul or punk or whatever it was. But then I need a band name. Well, a band name's a brand. Yep. And I was like, oh, well, how do I promote a brand? And then so then it became like this obsession with me, like, okay, how do I promote these things? You know? And I'm that guy. I'm that guy that was putting up flyers on telephone poles Mm. around Capitol Hill, you know. And, you know, I I remember distinctly, I had a friend of mine from high school named Steve Screen, who after college went into kind of the family business, which was advertising. And I remember talking to him once, I was like, I really want to learn how to make a band a brand. And he you know, bless his heart. He, he heard me when I said that. And he, like a week later, he gave me this photocopied pamphlet of an article called The Brand Called You. And I still have it mm. to this day. Yeah, And I forget who it was written by. But it changed my life, man. It was like how to, how to, how to brand something. And, um, and so I've sort of like been obsessed with it ever since, ever since in different ways. So I started, you know, whatever style of music I wanted to learn, I would start a band. Right. And then I'd figure out, OK, how do I get a steady night, a weekly night at some club on, you know, a really crappy dive bar on an off night? So they'll let me let it build. And then I would start like a themed night with this band playing sure. every week. Yep. And then it would be whatever style I was learning at that time. And it was usually danceable stuff, you know, and uh, and and, they would, you know, it would let me, they, you know, you approach like a club owner. And you say, give me a, a Sunday or Monday just give me a month. And then that's where the magic of coffee entered because I was working these hip indie cafes where every customer that I made a drink for would get a flyer for my weekly sure. gig, yeah, right? yeah, a little promotion. <laughs> so yeah, man. And it was the best promotion ever, you know, and like they would they would come every and the bartenders were like, "How are you getting all these people down to these shows, you know?" Like, it's my coffee gig, you know. And then, uh, inadvertently, I sort of fell in love with coffee and how that, uh, that's made as well. So I just kept practicing, and, and it was very humbling at the same time, because playing jazz music for that many years was really good for certain aspects of my playing, but, uh-huh. but not so much when it came to moving a huge room of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was a different skill set that I had to practice, and it was inspiring. So I started to listen to a lot of session musicians, guys that played on people's records, and okay. tried to figure out what, what was it that they did that made them in demand, you know? What was it that Bernard Purdy played on all of these amazing hundreds and thousands of records that people wanted him? And a lot of it had to do with confidence. A lot of it had to do with um, playing less, uh, only playing what was necessary, hmm. and having extremely solid time. And so it became, you know, I slept with, literally slept with a metronome, you know, like with it clicking through the night to become more comfortable with a metronome and playing to a metronome. And, um, and so that became my goal was to be able to play sessions. And so mm-hmm.
1: can, can I ask kind of a creative question? And sure. It sort of reveals my sort of terrible ignorance when it comes to music. But so I'm thinking about like whether it's a session drummer or you're like, you know, a singer, songwriter gets, gets, has the idea of bringing you in. Yeah. You know, I assume some sort of music is emerging. And with that, some sort of a lyric. Mm-hmm. And then are you just sort of left to your own to figure out the, the, the drum line that, that fits with what they're creating? Is yeah. Is that kind of how it works?
0: Yeah. Usually, like, if I'm in a recording situation, nowadays it's a different story. Nowadays, they'll usually have a temp track with some sort of programmed drum part that okay. they feel like is in the ballpark. But they want uh, that human element with more feel. Yeah. Um, so they'll bring me in a lot of times after the fact, almost last, where it used to be the drummer was always done first. They uh. needed a good drum track to build everything on. Yeah, yeah, foundation. Yeah. Now with, the, with uh, the advent of digital recording and the grid and, and, and all the software that's available, they're able to do a lot of... The, the work before I even come in the room. And then a lot of times they just want drums to make it sound better. Okay. Um, so, yeah, usually nowadays it's kind of like the last thing where it used to be the first thing. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Wait, for so, better or for worse.
1: But, so you're trying to find your way um, with these musicians and yeah. also you know building your own brand, and yep. I can see how this is all kind of coming together.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then right about that time when I uh, – my, my mother was um, – what had ovarian cancer Mm. and so jenna my wife and i um we're we're still dating at that point but we had we had planned to move to la eventually so that i could give it a shot yep but i didn't want to abandon my mom who was very sick and um and my dad who was who was trying to deal with that so um and my mom fought hard for five and a half years with chemotherapy and (laughs) technically at one point was in remission but it came back um, and she eventually passed away, um, which was devastating, um, and and yet it's at the same time sort of opened a door. It mm-hmm. was kind of like, okay, this this part of your life's done. It's time to move on. So yeah. it was kind of our cue to move to LA, and it was scary, man. It was a big leap of faith because I'd sort of developed my brand, you know, in Seattle, where I was working five, six nights a week playing. Mm-hmm. Um, in various musical projects and stuff and doing okay, but it was more like still playing for like 50 bucks a night
1: something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, so you're you know. at best going sideways financially, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, I was teaching a lot too. I was teaching at Seattle drum School Okay, so that helps. And I had about, at one point I had like 47 students. I was wow. really teaching a ton. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, it was still in the back of my head. You're gonna be really sorry if you don't at least. Try. That's
1: probably like that existence teaching 47 students, playing six nights a week is like not the 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 dream shot of the life of you music, musician that you not had for in your me. mind, right? Not
0: for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess at the time I was feeling very lucky that I was working and and I I enjoyed teaching because I was practicing at the same time yeah, as I'm teaching. Of you know, um, but. Yeah, I so wasn't LA satisfied. was calling, and it yeah, was time. Yeah, that was I'm yeah I'm still to this day and just never, you know, always visualizing what's next, and that was it, and and I knew it was going to work. I don't know why I knew, but I just knew it was going to work, and I could visualize myself down there, and so we made the leap of faith, and we moved down there, and it took two years for the phone to ring. I was working more coffee gigs down yeah. there, yeah, and but just saying yes to everything I could, and um and then eventually my first gig is very strangely enough with with actress Minnie Driver Mm -hmm. Um, uh, she's also a singer songwriter and uh, was recommended for her and uh, auditioned for her but I literally got it because I got along with her black Labrador retriever I think good skill set right (laughs) It's good skill set to have, and Don't, uh, uh, piss off the dog. Right, I mean, that's, right. That's pretty good intuition, John. But seriously, man, I saw the guys coming out of the audition that I knew from like drumming magazines, and I'm like, Ooh, they're not gonna hire me for this, and and I got the gig, you nice. know. And I swear it's because she, uh, I said hi to her dog before I walked in, uh, but it worked, and I got that gig, and that was sort of like the very beginning. And then Money Mark from the Beastie Boys called me uh-huh. and said, uh, Hey, man, I'm flying to Japan in two days. You want to come play? In... <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. The Fuji Rock Festival with me. I had never met him, and I was a huge Beastie Boys fan, obviously. And and um, and so he said, "Yeah, we'll rehearse tomorrow, and we'll expedite your passport thing." I got this. There's this company in LA that yeah, specializes yeah. in that. It can be done. Okay. You know, so I did it, man. We flew all the way to Tokyo, played for 45 minutes, and flew back. And <laughs> wow. that was that was it was crazy, man. And that was like a life changing experience. And, uh, and so then I came back and the reason Money Mark had called me is I had done a couple sessions for a producer that he had worked with and uh, recommended me, said I learned stuff fast and, and showed up on time. So, um, so yeah, man. And, and then, um, I started, uh, doing sessions for this, this producer and that got me on Bruno Mars first record. Okay. Um, and and then I was working with some buddies of mine just trying to write songs, and some of the songs got put on Bruno's first record. And then that led to me playing with CeeLo Green on his record.
1: Yeah, and so your network's expanding. Yeah, and, and then suddenly reputation. it was just,
0: like, blowing up, you yeah. know? And yeah. um, uh, so what happened was, and this is kind of goes back to the branding thing, um, music is so vast that... that when I first moved to L.A., I was doing a lot of singer-songwriter gigs. And I was saying yes to everything that I could. But it got to a point where I realized that that wasn't really what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, I love playing with singer-songwriters, but really when I, when, I, when I was really honest to myself, what really attracted me was, was you know going back to that De La Soul record. You know, like the stuff that people sample is the stuff that I'm really into, the funky stuff that mm-hmm. people really want to move to and and so and I started to see more and more that that's what I should head head for and and um through some really good teachers, I developed a really good ear and and uh, for knowing how to get sounds that sounded like they were recorded in the sixties, you know like I was. I'm very adept at knowing how to play touch-wise and what drum to choose, how to hit the drum, how to tune it, how to, you know, to get these sounds like 60s samples. Sure. You know, and and it became really a blessing because as people sample more, uh, the people who were getting sampled were starting to, you know, sue more uh, for using their samples. Uh, Oh, yep, so they need somebody that can bypass the sample. Yeah, they'll play me a record and say, hey, man, here's this 60s, you know, um, Caetano Veloso record from Brazil. Can you sound like this Brazilian funk drummer from the 60s? And I'm like, yeah, sure, you know? And so I would know what mics to use, where, you know, where to place them, and walk in and be able to get it done in a short amount of time. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of my niche, man. And like, like suddenly Bruno Mars was calling and Cee Lo Green was calling. And like, I was starting to get these things because they didn't want to clear samples and they yep. didn't want to pay these huge amounts of money to clear samples. So I became that guy, you know, and then that led me to Fitz. Um, Fitz, uh, first, his first little EP demo that he had had that sound of old Motown kind of stuff. And, and you know, when is
1: this? Like early two thousand, mid 2000s? Uh, this
0: would be 03. 03. Okay. Or no, excuse me. No, not 03. What am I saying? 09. 09. Sorry. Yeah. yeah I thought, okay. Lost more track recent. of time. Yeah. Sorry. 09. Uh, um, and so, yeah. So um, I got recommended from a keyboard player that I played with to Fitz and he just called me for a dive bar gig and Like, I listened to his demo, and I'm like, this is cool. And this kind of up my alley. So I said, yeah. And then suddenly, like, I had only planned to do a couple gigs with him in bars, you know, but there was lines around the block. Mm. And and then there was more lines. Yeah. And then bigger clubs with lines around the block. And suddenly... Two gigs turned into 10 gigs in the residency in L.A. and jaded L.A. And people were loving it. And like, everyone hates everything in L.A. You know, they've already (laughs) seen and done. And so, so, um, yeah, man, it's like it's one of those things where that branding of myself and deciding this is my strong point, this is what I need to focus on, that really paid off. Hi, I'm Jackie Moore. I'm a Regents Professor of Marketing at the University of Montana College of Business And you're listening to A New Angle.
1: This episode of A New Angle was brought to you by the Montana Code School, enabling the next generation of code-savvy workers. Are you looking to breathe life into your career and maybe bag a promotion at your existing employer? Join Montana's exploding tech sector with great opportunities from local tech companies such as Submittable, ClassPass, ATG, and more. The Montana Code School has full-time and part-time coding programs designed to open up a world of new code-savvy career opportunities from digital marketer to customer service and web design to junior developer. To learn more about Montana Code School's programs, visit www.montanacodeschool.com slash a new angle. That's www.montanacodeschool.com slash a new angle. Seats are filling up fast for mid-September classes with financing options available. Check out these guys. They do tremendous work.
0: And, uh, you know, it took 30 years, but it finally paid off. And then the Fitz thing really blew up because uh, we were (laughs) one of the we had a bunch of little fortuitous things that happened randomly. But Adam Levine from Maroon 5 was having a tattoo done.
1: Oh, yeah. I've heard the story. Yeah. 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 And
0: he was listening to that EP and said, who is this? And the tattoo artist said, oh, it's Fitz in the tantrum. So a month later, we're out opening for them, you know. On a college tour. And then, you know, so things like that happen, you know, just one after the other. And so it was kind of in the cards, I think, you know, meant to happen. And and so, uh, (laughs) and I, I hate to belabor this, but, and it keeps coming back to branding because then we had a thing that worked in that band. Yes. Right. And it was kind of a throwback Motown thing. We were lumped in with people like Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings and who was, you know, one of my heroes. And it was a cool scene to be a part of, but we were kind of seeing the writing on the wall that that was not going to last. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, it seems like it's it's a trend. Yeah, it's a trend. Exactly. And there's like a cyclical thing where every like three, four years, you get one kind of throwback soul singer that pops through. And we were that kind of. You know, and we didn't want to be that. Sure. Um, and Fitz, very smartly, was kind of like, we need to get away from this, you know? And that was, a, it was a, another leap of faith for us, you know, where we weren't sure um, if we were abandoning our audience. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we were, kind of, you know? Like, there was a lot of people very pissed off at the next record. We were using all of our influences from the 80s. We were all products of the 80s, you know? So we were using a lot of those synths and program drums, and people were pissed. But more people liked it. Yeah, you yeah. know, you've widened and the tent a little you've bit, widened it which again. pisses
1: people off. But also, I mean, you're getting your music in front of more people.
0: Right. We had that song called "The Walker" that just yep. blew up, and out of my league. Also, another one went platinum, and uh, so um, I mean, it paid off in that way. You know, uh, but it's you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say I was dealing with a lot of that. I, I call it punk rock guilt, where it's like. Uh, I mean, you, you know, you're selling out or yeah, something. And yeah. as a jazz musician, you really deal with that, man, because I'm <laughs> playing pop music at this point. <laughs> you you know? sold out a few times on yeah, this. Yeah, oh man. I, yeah. Technically, you know, I was, yeah, I had really jumped the shark at that point. So, um, so yeah, there was a lot. It was. It was, it's still, I mean, I still deal with it to a certain extent, yeah, you know. That's I, fair. Yeah, you know. Um. But along the way, I've learned a lot. And the one thing... Um, you know, what we can talk about is is what happens when you get to a successful point. You know, um, how it changes. Yeah, exactly. You
1: know? I mean, we 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 had this conversation before we started recording about, yeah. you know, you had to kick and scream and grit your way to a shot at success. Yeah. You know, and then things came together, and, and, you just, and it, it certainly wasn't easy at any step, right? But then. You guys have arrived in, in in a way, right? In a huge way, yeah. Like how does creativity change, once, right? Once the sort of need to provide food on the table or uh, you know, find a bed to sleep in, like once the once you've you've got a little slack in your system, right? How does the hunger stick? How does the hunger? When well, you move to
0: Missoula, Montana, man. <laughs> <laughs> open up coffee shops. That's, That's right, yeah, all, exactly. all that stuff. There, actually, there's some truth to that. Absolutely. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's it's. It's difficult. Well, first of all, being on the road as much as uh, in the music industry now, there's there's really just two ways to make any money. Mm-hmm. Either you have to tour uh, a lot, and or you can have your music synced to commercials or movie yeah. trailers or yeah, movie yeah, soundtracks. Yeah, yeah. You're selling yeah, repetitions kind of. in many ways. Because mm-hmm. no one's selling any records anymore. You know, with Spotify and Pandora and all these things, you know, no one's making any money off of that. Um, uh, so yeah, it's licensing that really is, you know, and I've learned a lot about that, you know, and, and over the last nine years and, um, man, it's being on the road that much in order to make money is tough because right as we hit success pay dirt, my daughters were born. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's kind of one of those things, be care- be careful what you wish for. You might just get it, and it's probably going to happen right at the worst time when the most amazing thing happens to you, and you have kids, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. twins, no less. And... So what are they, eight now? They're seven? nine. Nine. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so... Yeah, and it was tricky because at, uh, you know in the beginning stages of the fits and the tantrums, you might be opening for Maroon Five, but you're not making any money. Mm-hmm. Like you're actually basically paying to go out there for the exposure, and so, so you're That's right.
1: They're probably framing it as, yeah, we're giving you all this exposure. Why yep, should we pay
0: you? Yep, yep, exactly. Uh, and uh, you're leverage. coming back broke, and um, it was tough. You know, <laughs> and, and you're d- gone all the time. Yeah, and Jenna's dealing with twins. You know, in yeah, LA. Yeah. Um, with a high overhead, which that's when we decided to move to Montana because there was this precipice. And she's from here, right? Yeah, she was born and raised here. Um, So we were getting family support uh, here. Your dollar goes a lot further here. Um, And so uh, just to ease our stress, there was that point where we're like, okay, this, this could work. It could work. It's not working yet, but it could work. If it does, great. If it doesn't, we're going to land in Missoula versus LA um, where we're going to go deeper and deeper in debt yeah. and um, with no family support whatsoever. And uh, so that was, that was the reasoning for moving here. Um, and, um, but the other tough thing about being on the road that much is I wasn't able to practice anymore. Mm. You know, you play every night and that's a certain skill set. And when I'm on stage, I'm always sort of in the mindset that I'm practicing as well as performing and trying to work on subtle things every night. But it's not the same as being in a practice it's room. It's not deep work. No, yeah. it's, not, it, it's not that isolation that I crave. And um, so that was, that was a tough part of it too, about the success. And because it just, there was a point there where we were never home, man, for years. Yeah, I never saw my kids. When mm. I would come home, you know, my daughters were looking at me like I was a stranger. And it was tough to try to rebuild the connection every yeah. time. Yeah. Um, and that became the challenge. I was really trying to enjoy the continued success and how it was snowballing. But it was really tough because I felt like I was not being a very good father. And, um, and I was not developing connection with my kids. And so it was tough to enjoy the success, you know. And it was tough not feeling like an artist anymore. You're more of a machine at that point, mm-hmm. you know, and I hate to say this stuff because sometimes that punk rock guilt kicks in where I'm like, oh, yeah, woe is you. There would guys, There's guys that would kill to be in that position, sure. you know? And it's true. Um, I would have killed to be in that position that I was in. But it, it's one of those things where I tell everyone I have the best gig in the world. It's the easiest gig in the world, except the fact that I have to be away from my kids, you yeah, know, and my wife. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, so, yeah, it became... It was really tough. I was the only dad in the band. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that still the case or is that changed? No, thankfully. It's changed in a big way. Everyone's a dad. Uh, Noelle, bless her heart, is is the only one that's not a parent yet. Um, uh, She's in a tough position being the only female in the band, you know. And plus she's a front person. So, um, yeah, it'd be tough to go out there with a baby. (laughs) (laughs) You know, especially as, as much of a powerhouse as she is on stage, you know. Um, so yeah, it was, it was tough. They were sympathetic to a certain point, but everyone was like, didn't really get it. Um, what I was dealing with mm-hmm. at that point. And that was frustrating. Um, honestly, at that point, now that I think about it, I was the only married guy in the band too. So yeah, that
1: creates a whole nother issue. Set yeah, of Issues
0: too. Yeah. It was tricky, man, you know, and, and trying to have someone sympathize, but it wasn't really there. Yeah. But at the same time, I was thankful to be making some money and it continued to get bigger. Uh, The paychecks were bigger. Um, So that was helping at home. But uh, it was, yeah, it was a tricky time. Uh, But then as the guys started to get married and started to get babies, they were a lot more sympathetic. Right, right. But in the last few years, um, it's become easier to the point where we just go out for at at most usually about six weeks. Uh And then we'll come home for a couple weeks, do a six-week run, come home for a couple weeks, that kind of thing. And that seems to work okay. Yeah. You know, as well as it can be. But the guys are a lot more sympathetic. now. Sure, yeah, they yeah. get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was. It's been a crazy ride seeing how that, um, how we've changed um, to become more successful uh-huh. with the hopes of being more successful. This last record was a very, very big departure, um, you know, and caused a lot of tension. In the band, you know, um, the the goal with the higher ups was to swing for the fences and get on pop radio, mm-hmm. which, I mean, you want to talk about punk rock guilt. That was really tough for me. Like, it's the last, I mean, there was a part of me that, look, I love a pop song. I love, I'll listen to Katy Perry and then I'll go listen to John Coltrane, you yep. know, but, but so I don't really have that kind of guilt, but. It was um, a little voice in the back of my head saying, "You're selling out even more. You're, you know, um, uh, you know, this has gone too far." Um, and then again, there was there was some of that backlash from our fan yeah, you base. You feel like you're losing control. Yeah. Of, you're creating, of your brand in a way, yeah. right? Well, because we, you know, we signed to a major label, and when you do that, you are beholden to them to yep. a certain extent, yep. and um, they want to have their voice heard as well mm-hmm. in what they think is going to sell. And if you want them behind you with the machine behind you um, and reaping the benefits of a large promotion staff, you have to play the game, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. You know, and, and some people choose not to, and maybe it works out sometimes, but more often than not, it doesn't. You know? So we played the game. We swung for the fences and, and we had that song hand clap that really, yeah. you know, was as big Out as... Out of the park. Yeah. I mean, it sold more in the first six months than all of our other ones combined. You know, it was crazy what happened with that, you know, and um, not so much with any of the other songs on that record, but it sort of was one of those things, that well, didn't really matter, you know, it was like we got this huge hit. Um, but pop radio and this is where we start to get into like the business aspect of things you know as much as as much as no one's making any money off of selling records radio is still king and so all of the touring is based around radio formats and the listenership and um, so I'm learning I've learned more and more about radio is still really in charge of everything really yeah you, yeah, wouldn't, you wouldn't think so yeah, right Exactly. you wouldn't I certainly didn't think so. Um, but it is. And, um, radio formats like alternative radio, college radio, alternative radio. It's kind of
1: genres, if you will.
0: Yeah. 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 And we were starting to, you know, we would, we were crossing over into all of these bigger radio formats that were more commercial. But as far as pop radio, meaning like top 40, Mm -hmm. I think we hit it, you know, we hit up in like 28, something like that, which is really good. Yeah. But that was about where we peaked and we were open for number one, you know um so uh it was a little frustrating in that and then um uh so we've sort of had to re-examine now that we've done servicing that record now it's sort of like okay where do we go from here what's next you know? the label wants to hear another hand clap right you know? right and yeah but we don't yeah do you want to you make know a little bit of those. Right. <laughs> so that's that's when you run into you know you potentially some conflict um or some negotiations and some compromise and that kind of thing and and uh, um, so yeah we'll see what happens next it's it's tricky it's a balancing act Mm -hmm. definitely
1: so when does that process start of of sitting down or or it has yeah it's already creative process now
0: yeah right now I mean we're going out the road like I say for about three weeks here coming up but even that feels like, oh, maybe we shouldn't be hitting the road. Maybe we should be riding, you know, and, and trying to, because, you know, we're riding and turning things in and hoping we get the reaction like, that's, that's it. That's your next hand clap, you know, but so far, not, yeah. not so much, you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. It's, it's, it's tricky. Nice. It's really tricky. Yeah.
1: Well, I want to, I want to be respectful of your time, but I also no, no, want to shift good. gears just a bit and mm-hmm. get into drum coffee a little bit. Yeah. Cool. Um, And, I mean, the the obvious question that comes to mind, at least to me, is, really, another coffee shop? Right. (laughs) I mean, that's a cynical question. I mean, I know exactly, uh, deeply respectful and admire what you guys have done. Thanks, So I'm not saying it in in, in, in any way dismissive. But at some point, like, you're sort of penciling out this idea, like, Somebody's got to ask you. Really, does Missoula need another coffee shop? Right. So, what was missing that that you brought to the table, or you need you wanted to bring to the table?
0: Yeah, that's yeah, it's a great question, man. I um, so I have this thing. I, I have this um, a talent, I guess, or um obsessive talent and a curse in the same yeah in the same wrapper. Yeah. Well, so far it's been a blessing. Um, I I I have this. Well, I have two weird things that go on in my head. I I have synesthesia, which um, uh, sonically, um, I have a weird form of synesthesia in that I I see colors in my mind's eye um, when I hear sounds. Okay. But... My form of synesthesia is slightly different than anything I've, I've heard in that it, it triggers mul- different different senses. Synesthesia is usually like one sense is triggering something else in another sense. Where I see colors in my mind's eye with combinations of sounds, it's either pleasant or not. And when it's pleasant, I also another sense. I know this seems like an offshoot, but I promise I'm not tired. No, 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 I like in. it. <laughs> uh, I also get this weird chewing sensation. Where if something is pleasant, I know it's working because I get this pleasurable sensation. Huh. So it works to my benefit in that I'm able to, when I'm in the writing process in music, I'm able to um, use that in combining and producing music. I know what sounds work well together. Yeah, um, And I wait until that sensation and those colors work. Um, And it also works with culinary things. Um, And this ties into the other aspect of my brain, which I don't really know if it has a name other than um, maybe it's type A or or maybe it's just obsessive. But I have this, this brain where even as we're having this conversation, I've already had this conversation with you probably 10 times mm-hmm. I've scripted it in my head before I even walked in the door from the time you said, let's get together. Sure. So throughout the day I have that going on in my head, whether it's, and a lot of times it's unfortunate because it can be conflict oriented. Like if there's any conflict in my, my life, it becomes that obsessive loop. Yeah. Difficult. It's tough. Um, and not that I have much conflict, but if there ever is or potentially conflict, yeah. that conversation or that argument that I'm going to have is scripted you can get wound up. to yeah. the T. I mean I know everything. <laughs> I should have been a lawyer. That's what my dad always said. Um so but the same goes for visualizing the future in my career uh, my career as a musician and my career as a cafe owner, coffee uh-huh. roaster, barista. So yeah two years in l a for waiting for the phone to ring may have seemed like a long time and very scary to most people, but it wasn't for me because I already had scripted it in my head, and I knew it was going to work out eventually. Oh. I know that sounds weird no, but it. but it truly was like everyone's like I remember working in cafes and customers would come through and like so um so what so you're a drummer, huh yeah, so how long are you going to do that until you find it real? you know it was like no one seemed to understand that there, there's – uh, the success has already happened in my head so many times that I already know it's going to happen. I live in a constant state of deja vu. Yeah. It's already happened in my head. And I hope this isn't coming off as arrogant because it's not, not, at all. It's not it meant to It seems like
1: you have this deep sort of combination of this ability or passion
0: for visualization. Right. But also it's sort of tempered with a little obsessiveness in there too. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So – but it's work to my benefit in uh, every aspect of my life whether um, it was in music or now in coffee and you're right Uh, most people would say really another coffee shop well to me and don't take this the wrong way but to me there's no competition there Hmm. isn't any yeah I don't even see competition it's like having blinders on and the only thing that I see is the visualization that I've had about these cafes I've already already done the success in my head with these cafes okay so there isn't any competition although I mean to push on that a little bit like
1: you're a student of the game I mean I I saw you around town hanging out in a lot of shops studying Mm -hmm. before you open drum and then I assume you're doing that on the road too like you're going for your runs and you're visiting the best shops in all these towns you're touring in so yep though you're not Directly competing necessarily with those shops, you're you're kind of interacting in a a, you're learning from the marketplace. Always learning,
0: always learning. But I was really really lucky in that when I first came up, and this again will tie in when I first came up in the '90s in Seattle when that coffee scene was blowing up. There was a reason it was blowing up in Seattle, not just the weather and people needing more caffeine. The scene was blowing up because the cafe scene there was really awesome. Mm-hmm. It was a social scene where, I mean, technically now we're making so much better coffee now in cafes. Like, when I look, think back to the coffee I was putting out back then, it was kind of a joke. Yeah. Um, but it was all about the hang. And um, I'm sure Jeff Amon could speak to this as well. Yeah. Like he was working in yeah. cafes. But it was all about this hang. The that third was around. place, the scene. Right. Yeah. That's what was missing. Mm. Because the science of coffee now has eclipsed the hang, which is what coffee is all about. It's all about um the social environment that it creates. It's ideally, I mean, if you go to Italy, it never left, but you go to Italy, it's like being going into a bar yeah. at eight in the morning, you know? Literally you're going to the bar and eight in the morning. And it's that sort of social environment there's you know that was that went away in typical fashion and i hate to say in american fashion but it's kind of true we take things too far where we we there's a reason i go into those cafes when i'm on the road is to honestly pick out what i wouldn't do mm. a lot of times yep yep I don't I don't mean to be snobby no, but I learned learn like
1: you develop some clarity of of what you want to do and what but you
0: don't. It's the same, you know, like any artist would tell you, steal. Steal what what you like from all those different places and that in that provided a much clearer vision. For instance, I'll give you an example. Like when I was touring through Boston, I went to a cafe called Blue State Coffee. And Blue State was it's lately not doing so great. But when I first went in there, it was one of the best shots of espresso I've ever had. So I w- but when I looked around, I looked to my back, and they had this system where when you bought a coffee from them, they give you a wooden token. Mm. And with that token, you turn to your right, and there's three charities mm. that you can donate to sure. based on whatever pulls your heartstrings the most, right? And then they would, in turn, donate 2% of their sales. The, whatever charity they allocated as yep. a proportion of the exactly. tokens I'm like why wouldn't everyone do that that's brilliant yeah so i'm stealing from all these different places there's a place in new york city called abraso it's like vibe the guy there behind the bar remembers i knew from the first time i met him he remembered what it was like on the west coast in the 90s for this for the coffee scene he was just it was so much fun walking into that place it was a shoe like no bigger than your office here. You walk in and it was like the most amazing experience. And the food they were putting out was incredible. It's just the hang was so amazing there. Abraso, I was like, that's it. That's what I want mine to feel like, you know? So I'm learning from all of those places. But what it does is it, it gives me my vision even more clearly defined and stronger where... When we're building out these cafes, I know every inch what it's going mm, to look like. Yeah. You know, I know exactly the type of staff that I want to hire. Mm-hmm. I know what those personalities are going to be. I know what the vibe of the cafe is going to be. I know. I mean, it's it's insane. It, it is obsessive.
1: Like do you and do you and Jenna align on this stuff? Like, or, like I assume she
0: kind of just lets me do my uh, thing. <laughs> I was wondering kind of how that uh, and works. and then tells me to chill out, you yeah, know, yeah. like when I need to chill out. And but sh- where we align is, um, where we align really big time is a lot of the aesthetics of the interiors of the cafe. Yep. Um, she's she and I, thankfully, because uh, everything I've read about starting starting businesses with you. <laughs> <laughs> with your spouse is usually a recipe for disaster, but with she and I, thankfully, uh, very rarely do we run into anything where we're butting heads on it. The only time we ever run into uh, situations like that is that I'm freaking out because the vision is being strayed from yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's usually me needing to chill out, yep. you know, and allowing some slight variation in that vision. Mm-hmm. Um, which I need. You know, I need to hear it. Otherwise, I I would drive myself absolutely insane. Because like I say, every inch, every little thing has been planned out in my head so many times, it's like, you know, it's well, excessive.
1: You know, and you can tell instantly when you walk into one of your cafes that, that that's the case. Like hearing you tell this, this, this sort of how your process works, mm-hmm. like... Yes, I can see that when I, you know, when I walked into the the South Street shop for the first time, I mean, everything's different. Yeah, the tile, the machine, mm-hmm. and all of it is sort of perfected by the people. Mm-hmm. You've got awesome staff, and yes. they are so jazzed up and passionate about what they're doing, and it right. all kind of coalesces. Yeah, and the value proposition—I mean, for using a sort of a corny business school term—it's very clear.
0: Yeah. It's place you want to be. Well, I I have to tell you, you know, it all started, Jenna also worked in cafes in the 90s in Seattle. And we remembered what worked staff-wise and what didn't. What type of personalities were the ones you couldn't wait to work with at 6 a.m. Yep, yep. (laughs) And what ones you dreaded. And the first person we hired, we stole from Taco Del Sol here, was Kendra Bell. Mm-hmm. I went in to get when we were building out the space on South Avenue. I went to get a burrito there, and she was working behind the counter. And I saw her and the way she interacted, and the way and her energy. And I was like, "That's it. That's it. She's and the one." I remember there was this girl in Jenna and I. We both worked for Cafe Vita at one point in Seattle, and and there was a girl named Nicole that worked there. And we always wanted to find our Nicole because mm. we knew Nicole was the best. Yep, and. When I went in and I saw Kendra, I was like, there's our Nicole. And, uh, and so I, then I started stalking her. And I went back just to see if it really was as good as I thought it was. I kept going back and back. And like, sure enough, every day I saw her, she was just phenomenal with customers. And so I grabbed Jenna and I brought her there. And I said, I think I found her Nicole. And she went in and in one minute was like, oh, my God, that's her. And so we waited till she was out wiping tables and we were like, can we talk to you for a minute, you know, and, and thankfully she was open to it, you know, and, and um, uh, she was ready for a change and ready to bring on more responsibility in her life. And, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but look, it's an awkward situation, man, because um, <laughs> and it worked this way with both of the cafes we've opened so far Is literally the day after we open, I split. You for know. tour. Yeah. I'm like, okay, thanks. I'm out, you know, and hope that it works. Um, and the reason it works is that we know what works from working in cafes for so many years mm-hmm. and what type of personality we want behind the counter and um, and we also know what not to stress about there's certain things you know there's certain things that I think a lot of cafe owners stress about that, that really they need to let go you know like um, just and I hate to say this, I'm in an enviable position because my, day, my other day job pays me pretty well. Um, and so maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but, but I can honestly say I think a lot of people are a little bit too concerned with the bottom line right out of the gate mm-hmm. and they're, they're losing the, the, the long game, which is what people come in for is the experience. And this is going to sound really cheesy, but coffee in particular can be a transcendent experience. If you walk in, and the coffee is is amazing. The person behind the counter is amazing. And you can, a lot of the other stuff can fade away into the, you know, into the background temporarily while you build that following the same way I built it in bands in mm-hmm. Seattle. Mm-hmm. You know, if you give them something that's transcendent, that they walk away with like, holy moly, I just walked in the door and I felt like I entered a different country. Yes. You yeah. know? Um, it's the same as when I was doing crazy bands that I put together that I knew were amazing creatively and giving people something completely different that they couldn't find anywhere else. And that that bar owner let me develop every Monday night. You know, it's the same exact philosophy with these cafes. You know, I'm lucky in that I'm able to to, to take a deep breath because financially I've got this other gig. But... Um, it's the same, man. It's the exact same as starting those nights in Seattle at those clubs. It's just that it's just a different medium. Mm -hmm. It's the exact same thing, you know. And so far, thankfully, everything is paying off, you know. Um, And now we've entered into the roasting world, which for me, you know, is the next logical step. Next to payroll you know, that's our biggest overhead. Sure. You know, rest your own. We were we were using black coffee, and Matt and Jim are some of the most awesome people I've ever met in my life. And it was honestly that was the only tough part about like those bringing that in. Yeah. Is that I adore those people. They're like really good people, you know. And and there was, you know that that was tough, and you know, and but. As a business owner, it was a decision that I had to make. But also, honestly, I don't mean this, this to sound cheesy, but that's that's an aspect of the the art form of coffee that I didn't want to deprive myself of. Sure. You know? Like that, next to being a barista, which I think is an art form, that's the next that's level. The next step. You know? And being able to... I get the same rush being at a roaster or behind the bar at, at, at my espresso machine that I do playing in front of 30,000 people. It's that same zone that you get into when it's busy in your cafe or when you're about to screw up a roast, that rush is the exact same as I get playing music. Um, so that's why I chose it as, um, you know, act two for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Um, none of us are getting any younger in the band.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, you know? that's true.
0: And it's not really sustainable as a family man to do that, uh, that schedule. Um, especially as my daughters are getting older and their memories are going to be more intact. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. You know, they're in third grade now. I don't remember too much from third grade, but... um,
1: Most of the memories I have from third grade involve my parents. So I I get what you're getting at. Yeah,
0: man. I I don't want to lose out on that, you know, for much longer. Uh, So, and I think the rest of the band now that their parents feel the same way. Mm -hmm. So we'll see, you know, um, None of us are kids anymore, so we 're starting to i think see okay let 's see how, how what we can do with this, how far we can push it, and then what 's act two you know and that's and that 's sort of the bedrock for these cafes are the bedrock for Act two for me and it 's sort of like already started for me, so it 's a little different but uh but thankfully it 's working um, it's um, and it's and it hasn 't been stressful thankfully Mm. it seems like a natural progression but maybe that goes back to that scripting that i've done in my head i have already seen it happen yeah i think so man you know it's like i think i've already scripted it so it doesn't feel wrong um but you know i don't know talking to you now about this it, it there's very few times where i question that scripting but until i you know it's like how do what do I compare it to? It's like you, you don't realize there's no safety net under you and until you, until you look down, you know, and I guess yeah, yeah. this is my looking down. You know, um, it's one of those things where um, um, I'm always surprised when I take a pause like this and talk about it just at how successful everything has become. Yeah. and I'm so thankful for it. But at the same time, it's also scary when you talk about it uh, because you take a break from scripting, you know. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, the script kind of comes out of your head a little bit. And yeah. You, you read it back to yourself in right. a way. Like, I don't know if this a- an analogy is working, but.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. As you're, you know, and then you're like, oh, shoot, is the other sh- shoe going to drop at some point? You know, but um, but so far it's been nothing but fun. And that's the most important thing. Right. You know, I don't, I don't, I, I made a few Resolutions, I remember one night walking in Seattle at 3 a.m. in the morning and looking, I was walking on Pine Street going towards my apartment downtown and seeing all of the windows in those buildings downtown and each of one of them had a cubicle in it Mm. and I swore to myself then and there that I I would never work in a cubicle and I would never work for assholes Mm. and that everything I would do with my life would be fun so that it didn't feel like work and so far i haven't I, there, i've come close on the asshole thing a couple of times <laughs> <laughs> cuz it's the music industry after all but uh but so far i haven't broken really those res- resolutions um and uh and it's it's worked out thankfully i sometimes i can't believe it's worked out but but uh but there again like everything in my brain told me it was going to work out so well i think that.
1: those those themes about why it's worked out are, are fairly clear to anyone who's been listening i mean just this this this, this dedication, this vision, this clarity you have with mm. with your own with your own sense of brand and your own personal mission, it's just it's neat to hear it kind of all put together. And uh, John, this has been great, and Dude, I thank appreciate you. the appreciate the hang, the wisdom. I'm gonna go and, cry
0: now because you made me think about everything. But yeah. no. <laughs> okay, no, <laughs> you're gonna expense the therapy to the podcast. <laughs>
1: That's what this was like, man. It was
0: good therapy, actually. It was great. No, cool, but man. thanks for having me, man. I, I look, and I, I have to tell you, just um, you know, um, following your exploits just in the running realm. Uh, you know, it's like a huge inspiration to me. And there's a there's characters around this town that, like yourself, and guys we were talking about earlier, yeah. you know, Steve Brown, and um, you know, all these guys where I don't think people realize the impact that they have on other people. And that's the benefit, I think, Of this small town is is that we see these people as normal people like we're talking now but if had I not known you I would have what you do to me would have seemed so like superhero-esque like the things you've been able to attain um, athletically are are just mind blowing to me, man, and like and and it's so inspirational because then when I get to meet you face to face, I'm like, you know, maybe this stuff is kind of attainable, or maybe you know you should give it a shot, you know, and 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 maybe this lifestyle is something that's attainable, and uh, you know, I I don't really get because I'm away so much, I don't really I'm in and out a lot, and I don't really get to tell the people around this town how inspirational they are to Mm. me and that includes yourself man like it's mind-blowing because it's funny like like i go out on the road and people follow my exploits online whether it's instagram or facebook but what people don't realize is like yourself mike foot mike wolf like all these guys i i stalk them (laughs) and yourself on online and i'm following you and and when i'm out there um in that reality that i mean that's that's my world is I'm, I'm following you guys and trying to just scratch the surface of what you guys are able to do, um, in that world. So anyways, thanks, man. Wow. I really appreciate that's, it. Man. That's very kind. I, and I mean it, I mean it with all my heart. It's been, it's been a life-changing experience moving here and being in this town and being exposed to th- this world of ultra running and, and, um, you know, climbing and, and just being outdoors, you know, like, um, it's changed my life. And it's changed my family's life, and um, I owe a lot to to this town and folks like yourself too, for inspiring me to do it. So thanks. Yeah, it's a two-way street. Thanks, Yeah, Sean. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: I Hope you enjoyed that conversation with John. I certainly thought it was fun. Coming up next week, we have Olympic mountain biker Sam Schultz, local Missoula hero, and uh, just a big inspiration to me. It's just Sam has had a bumpy road um, with his health the last four or five years and has just had such a graceful way of transitioning into um, just kind of this soul rider, community activist, um, spiritual leader here in the Missoula montana mountain biking community and uh, it was cool to catch up with sam and uh, we'll see you next week thanks for listening to a new angle we really appreciate it remember that a new angle was brought to you by ced consolidated electrical distributors they're one of the largest electrical wholesale suppliers in the country with nearly 600 locations nationwide ced is a privately held business-to-business company that distributes just about every piece of equipment you need to keep your lights on, your energy flowing, and your lifestyle comfortable. CED is also an important employer in our community, and they have a keen interest in University of Montana graduates. To explore career opportunities, check out www.cedcareers.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways you can support it. First, please rate us on iTunes. Ratings help others find the podcast. Second, write a review. The more reviews we get, and hopefully positive ones, the more we can grow. And third, just tell your friends about it. Before we go, I'd like to thank a few folks for making this podcast happen. First off, thanks to Elizabeth Willey, Communications Director here at the College of Business. And thanks to our fabulous interns, Savannah Sletten and Max Gibson. I'd also like to give a special shout-out to VTO for providing us with music. And finally, thanks to our producer, Jeff Meese. As we go, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever— please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag A New Angle when you do. Thanks a lot and see you next time.